As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, one thing we have asked of you and that we will continue to seek after, that we may dwell in your house all the days of our life, to gaze upon your beauty and to inquire in your temple. So hear us, O Lord, as we call to you, be gracious to us and answer us, for you have said, seek my face, and our hearts say to you now, your face, Lord, do we seek. So we ask you not hide your face from us, but reveal it to us in the face of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And teach us your way, O Lord, and lead us now on a level path. For we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Joshua, chapter 2. Joshua, chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 227, between the books of Deuteronomy and Judges. So we finished with the Belgic Confession for the year, and we want to take up our study of the Heidelberg Catechism in the new year, but that left us a gap then for here at the end of the year. Uh, Our church order says that we ordinarily ought to treat the three forms of unity, but the word ordinarily means that we can diverge at times, and I thought it would be good for us to at least think about the book of Joshua. We've just thought about the final judgment from Belgic Confession and the book of Joshua in a wonderful way is a picture of the final judgment that's coming um, and what God will do for his people in that judgment. And so I want to read from the book of Joshua, and we're going to look together at Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me. But I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house 
and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, that when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so let it be. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, Maybe you've studied the book of Joshua before, maybe you've never really taken the time to seriously consider the book, Uh, but one thing we know about the book of Joshua is that it's a book of conquest. Uh, Joshua is appointed by God to finally lead God's people into the promised land. Uh, That was the wonderful promise that finally came to him, the promise that God's people had been waiting for for so many decades In chapter 1, verse 2, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving them, to the people of Israel. After their failure to enter in, after their wandering in the wilderness, finally the time had come for them to go in and take possession of the land. And this is going to be a hostile takeover of the land. Uh, The people are not going to go willingly. This is going to be a a book of warfare um, as Israel comes into this kingdom, and it's a picture of final judgment in that sense of the kingdom of God wiping out the kingdoms of this world. Um, And that that can present many difficulties that we'll confront as we go on in this book from our modern point of view. Uh, Holy war of this kind brings up all sorts of questions that we have to deal with, and hopefully as we go along, we'll think about some of those difficult questions. But it's important for us to see this as a picture of final judgment, and in that In that judgment, there is going to be total victory for God and for his people, and there is going to be total destruction for those who are opposed to God and to his kingdom. Um, And that's going to be pictured in, in raw terms in this book. But before we get to any of that, it's important to notice that this book does not begin with the wrath and judgment of God. This book begins with the mercy of God. 
That's why the title of our sermon this evening is taken from Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. Because that's what God does in this story. Before the story of conquest, before the story of war, there is the story of God's saving mercy shown to Rahab. Uh, that she is saved from the destruction that is about to come. That God's mission, although it is one of conquest in the, in the chapters to follow, first is a mission to save. And we want to think about that mission to save this evening. Um, the spies and their adventures, or we might say their misadventures in Jericho, reveal really the saving mission of our God. And so we want to think about this passage in this way, in terms of the mission. First, we see the mission compromised. Um, second, we see the mission covered. And finally, we see the mission completed. That's how we want to think about this, our passage this evening. The mission compromised, the mission covered, and the mission completed. Um, our stories begin with two spies being given a secret mission. Right? We read about that in verse 1. Uh, they were given a secret mission. Go view the land, especially Jericho. And so these spies are going in and they are doing what you had to do back then if you wanted you know, reconnaissance and intelligence about warfare. You had to send spies to actually go physically spy out the land. Right? There are no drones or no satellites. You had to send actual boots on the ground to go and look and come back with a report. And so Joshua sends these two spies to do that work to go in to look at the land that they're going to have to fight, um, to find good ground to fight on, but also to think about this particular fortified city that stands first in their way. Uh, Jericho was on a road that was very common for invaders. That's why Jericho was a fortified city. It was at a crossroads where almost every invading army in history would come through that same gap. And so they fortified their city against those foreign invaders. And so Joshua, as a good military commander, knows he needs to know the ground that they're going to be fighting, and they need to understand something about this first fortified city, Jericho, that they're going to face. And so he sends these two spies on a secret mission that apparently is the worst secret mission in the history of secret missions. Because within the second verse, everything about their mission is known. Right? So, secret mission, verse 1 and verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come tonight to search out the land. Uh, they know who they are. They know what they're there to do. And they even know where they can be found. Right? Um, they're in the house of, of Rahab. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. This is why I say it's the worst secret mission in the history of secret missions. They know who they are, they know what they've come to do, and they know where they are. This does not seem to be going well for this mission right out of the gate. The mission is compromised right away um, as they've come to the house of this prostitute, Rahab. Um, now, this probably means that they were just at you know, what would have been in the Old Testament equivalent of a hotel. Um, doesn't mean I don't think a brothel. Um, it's a, probably a place where travelers would commonly go coming into the city. And so maybe they're just at a place where everybody who's visiting would go. But at the same time, they're known exactly where they are. Um, and it looks like the mission is about to fail before it even gets started. 
it's so badly compromised, they go right to where they are, and something remarkable happens. This mission that is so badly compromised is covered by Rahab. Now, maybe this, this story is so well-known to all of us that we know what's going to happen, and even if you, it wasn't well-known to you before we read it, we already read through it, you know what she was going to do, but it, I think it loses something of the shock we should have that she would cover for them, um, that she would make up this very convincing story about where they've gone. She's committing an act of treason against her people and against her city, For the sake of people who are there to spy out their city so they can figure out how to destroy it. Um, This seems a very strange thing for her to get into. To want to do something to preserve them. Uh, Not only to, to tell a story to protect them, but that buys them quite a bit of time. Because she makes up a rather good story. You know, well, when you're closing the gate, they slipped out in the dark and they're probably making it making their way to the river as fast as they can go. Um, and maybe if you rush out right now, you can catch them. And so, of course, what does that do, boys and girls? They all go, oh, we better run right now and catch them. And they all run out the door. So they bought them time, but they're still kind of stuck because when the pursuers go out, they close the city gates behind them. And so they've bought time, but they still can't seem to get out. And now she's put herself really in a fix because if they don't find these people, they're going to come right back and ask her about them again. And I think all of these details, all of this story is built up to ask the question and to bring us to the question, why would she do this? Why would she stick her neck out for them? Why would she do this for these spies who are seemingly there to overthrow her city? Um, And it's not until verses 8 through 11 in her great confession that we get a window into her thinking. Until we get this idea that Rahab really is a woman of faith. That's why she does these things. Um, And verses 8 through 11 are a wonderful confession of faith that she makes where she puts all her hope, all her trust in the God of Israel, in the Lord. Um, she calls on him and, uh, and asks for protection in his name. And I think her, her long statement in verses 8 through 11 is interesting and worth taking special note of. She said, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The first thing she says that's really remarkable is that she calls God by his covenant name. We talked about that this morning, didn't we? That it's something to know the name of the Lord. Uh, To know the Lord by His covenant name is to know Him. To have some knowledge of who He is and what that name means. It's not insignificant that she uses this name. Um, Now, one of the reasons I highlight this name when it comes up in sermons, you'll notice that I do that, Um, is I preached this text back when I was in seminary. And one of our preaching professors was in the room when I preached it. He was in the congregation. And I asked him after I preached it if I could talk to him about it and see how the sermon went. And I came into his office. He was very gracious. But he said to me, you know, on the whole it was okay. Um, But there was one word in the text that you might have made more of. 
And I think you'll do better if you figure out what that word is rather than just have me tell you. And so, boys and girls, you can imagine I sat there going, uh, there's a lot of words. And, you know, after doing a few dumb things like, oh, king, uh, you know, just not knowing which he meant, I did what you all do when you can't, don't know what the answer is, uh, the Lord. He said, yeah, she uses his covenant name. That's not insignificant. She doesn't talk about a God. She doesn't talk about a general power. She talks about God by his covenant name. She knows who he is. She's heard of him um, and calls him by name. And she knows something of the purposes of the Lord. I know, what the, I know the Lord, and I know what the Lord is doing. It's kind of remarkable to say, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Right? That's not just to say I know something of the Lord, but I know something of what the Lord is doing. I know that He's giving you this land. He, he, she's aware not just of His covenant name, but of His covenant purposes for His people. She knows what the Lord is doing, that he's giving you this land. And she says, and I know that the fear of you has fallen on the inhabitants of this land. Um, this, is, this is an interesting thing for these spies to hear, which was so different than the report that was bought, brought back by the ten spies who'd come with Joshua and Caleb, who said, you know, they're, they're huge giant men. There is no way we can fight them and win. They were afraid of the people of the land. But when these spies go in, what do they find? The people in the land are terrified of the Israelites who are coming. Right? So terrified, she says, that the fear of, the, of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Um, that's, a, that's a kind of word that would come up in military contexts when an army completely loses heart and is routed. If you were a military commander back then, the worst thing that could happen to your army was when they would melt away in fear. Because an army that gets to that point, they don't think about the danger they're in. They're so overcome, overwhelmed with fear that they just drop their weapons, turn their backs, and run. Um, and good military commanders know that you have to hold, even if you have to retreat, it has to be an orderly retreat or it'll turn into a rout. You're just being chased down from behind. And that's essentially what she's saying. We are so afraid, there is no will for anyone to stand. They're, they're just ready to turn tail and run. Uh, the fear of you has fallen upon us. We know what the Lord is doing. She says, I know what the Lord is doing. I know the impact it's had. Um, and part of that is not just because of what the Lord is doing, but because of what the Lord has already done. We've heard how he dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. You know, we, we heard that there was a powerful God who overcame the Egyptians, who had what we thought were some pretty powerful gods. 
and we know those kings that are on the, just over there on the other side of the Jordan. They were powerful kings with powerful people, and they were destroyed. We know what the Lord is doing, and we know what the Lord has done. And when we heard it, terror has fallen on us and melted away, and not a man has the courage enough to rise and face you. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. She, she's reporting the news, uh, which is the fear that's fallen. Uh, but then she makes her confession of faith in verse 11. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The Lord your God, He is God in, heaven, in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. Now, all the Canaanites have heard of the Lord what he's done and what he's doing, but she acknowledges that this Lord is God. He alone is God. That's a remarkable confession to make when you're living in a, in a world where there's a God for everything. The, Canaanite, the Canaanites had a God for everything. And for her to make this confession that there is one God who is God over heaven and earth and he is your God, the Lord, um, it's a testimony to her faith in Him. She knows the truth. She believes the truth. And the oath she makes them swear shows that she puts her trust in that name. She knows that that name is the only thing that stands between her and death. That she can only have protection in that name that will deliver her from the destruction that's coming. And that's how she ex expresses her trust in the Lord by asking them to swear to her in the Lord's name that they will deliver her if she helps them. Uh, she manifests that trust in trusting that if they swear that she will be protected. Uh, she makes them swear by the name of the Lord and says, as I have acted kindly with you, you will act kindly with me. Again, that word kindly is a very interesting word. When it's used of God, it means his steadfast love. Um, and I don't know whether she realizes that she's using this sort of heavy covenant term, but certainly as the Holy Spirit has it written down here, it rings out with covenant importance. I'm asking for steadfast love. As I have showed you kindness, show me kindness. As I have shown you Steadfast love, show me steadfast love. Um, it's the same word that we read in, in Exodus 20, verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Whether she fully understands it or not, she's asking for covenant protection, uh, for covenant acceptance. Led one commentator to say, genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God, but presses on to take refuge in God. And by asking for this oath, that's how she seeks to take refuge, come under the protection of the Lord. Uh, and they agree with her to do that. Right? They have, they have some conditions. You have to keep what we're doing secret. I'm not sure there's any real secret to keep, but she's got to keep secret from the rest of it. Um, if she reveals who they are or where they've gone or what they've done, there's no deal. Uh, she and her family have to be in the house when the judgment comes. He said we can't take responsibility for people just being out on the street, but anybody who's in the house when we come will be protected. Um, and you must tie this scarlet cord in your window to signal who's 
house is to be protected. And if you do all these things, then we will deal kindly with you. Then you and all who are in your house will be spared when the judgment comes. Um, And we see that she does that in verse 21. She says, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord to the window. Um, She even gives them good advice about how to evade capture. Don't go right back to the river because they just went to the river looking for you and you'll meet them on the way back. So go in the hills and hide. And then when they've come back, then you can go your way and be safe. And in doing this, we might not think that this has been really necessarily a huge event in, the, in redemptive history. Um, except that the Bible continually points us back to this moment and this experience of faith to hold Rahab up as an example of what faith is and what faith does. Right? She's an example to us of faith in many ways. It's a reminder that faith comes by hearing. She's heard what the Lord has done. Uh, maybe in all this hearing about the Lord and knowing what the Lord has done, um, she's formed all of these notions of who God is, but maybe doesn't know how she can be protected yet from the judgment to come. One commentator said it might be interesting to think about how she might have come by this knowledge. Maybe it was clients passing through, telling her, you know, there's some weird things happening in Egypt. There's some weird things happening across the Jordan. We don't know how this news came to her, but it came to her, and she heard it, and she believed in the God who they were telling her about. Now, ultimately, we know that God must have opened her eyes to see him in all of this and opened her heart to believe in all of this, and not just to hear as the rest of her people heard, but to hear and to believe. We see her as an example of how faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. We see it from where faith comes from. We see an example in her of what faith does. Faith bears fruit. We see the reality of her faith by her life, by her works, by her willingness to risk her entire life and to cast her lot entirely with God and with his people, to reject all of her own people in her own town for the sake of the Lord and his people. Her faith shows its reality in what she does. And there too, Scripture holds her out as an example of faith at work. Right When James is trying to say, faith without works is dead, and let me give you two good examples of people who showed they had faith by how they lived. The two go-to examples for James are Abraham, which we might say, okay, no-brainer, the father of the faithful, And James says, you want to know who is the second example? Rahab. She's an example of someone who showed she had faith by her work. She sided against Jericho. She sided against Canaan to side with God and helped his people. And in doing so, she showed that she belonged to the people of God. James holds her up as a hero of the faith, as an example of of someone whose faith lived. Uh, The writer of Hebrews holds her up as an example of faith. 
We read in Hebrews 11.31, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Um, the writer of Hebrews has no point, has no hesitation calling her a hero of the faith. No hesitation putting her right between Moses and the rest of the judges and David and Samuel. So it's, for him, it's the examples of faith. Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samson, David, Samuel, the prophets. She fits right in there with everybody else as an example of faith. She believed in the Lord. And because she believed in the Lord, she did not perish with the transgressors. She was saved. We don't see her salvation until Jericho falls in verse 6, but she's saved because she covered the mission of God's people and sought refuge in the name of the Lord. And she, despite where she's come from and how she's constantly referred to in Scripture, is held up to us as a model of faith. She covers their mission so that the mission can be completed. Now, this passage ends with us being told the spies are able to complete their mission. They returned to Joshua. They told him all that happened to them. And they said, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Uh, their mission is accomplished. They're able to bring their report to Joshua. Uh, Rahab accomplished her mission that she was given from the spies. She kept their mission a secret. She didn't betray them. She hung the scarlet cord in her window and awaited the salvation they promised. Uh, she completed the mission. Uh, but of course, the most important mission that we see has been completed in this text is God's mission. God's saving mission to save Rahab, his child, from the coming destruction. This story reminds us that God has had a plan all along to save this one person from the judgment that's coming. That he's paused everything in his plan to work such that her salvation is secured before any conquest happens. This is God's mission to save and rescue Rahab. And why does God do this? Because he set his everlasting love on her. He has chosen her to be saved from before the foundation of the world. And he will not rest until she has been saved. And he has set his love on her from before the foundation of the world, knowing that she was a covenant outsider, knowing that she was a Canaanite, knowing that she was a prostitute. And he not only set his love on her, but he acted to save her, brought her into his family, and exalted her. Uh, Rahab could quite easily just have slipped into God's people as a kind of secondhand citizen. Where people would say, well, you know, we made a deal, we have to take her, so she's allowed to come along, but, you know, we really don't want a whole lot to do with her because of where she's come from and what she's been doing. But she becomes a very important person in Israel. She marries Salmon. Does everyone notice that name? Do you remember that name from your histories? Salmon was the son of Nashon. I say, oh, okay, well, now we get it. 
you still got to give us more help, Pastor. We don't know what you're talking about. Solomon was the, was the most important person in Judah. He was the son of Nashon, who had been the leader of Judah in their, in their wilderness wanderings. He was the chief of Judah, um, and he was such an important person, if you want to think about where his family circles were, it was Nashon's sister who married Aaron the high priest. So he was family with Aaron and Moses by marriage. He was the head of the people of Judah, and his son marries Rahab. So she doesn't just get, you know, sort of allowed to be a kind of camp follower with the people of God. She's brought into this sort of prominent family and marries into this prominent family. And she and Solomon have a son, and they name him Boaz. Um, well, we know from the Boaz and Ruth story. Maybe that's why we see Boaz was such a good person and who was sympathetic to women who had difficult backgrounds. Uh, maybe because his mother was Rahab the prostitute. But he and Ruth marry, and they have a child, and they name him Obed. And Obed has a son, and they name him Jesse. And Jesse has a son, and they name him David. And David is the king of Israel. Um, and so we know that she becomes part of a great family. She is the great-great-grandmother of David, if I have my family tree right. And we know, boys and girls, don't we, that David was related to somebody very important too. By many generations, David is the father of Jesus, which means Rahab is the great, 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 I don't know how many greats, but great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. God brings her into his family covenantally, spiritually, literally. Um, he, she's held up to us as someone that God is not ashamed to be called part of her family, to be descended from her. And that's why when we read about her in the, in the Bible, every time she's called Rahab the prostitute, we might say to ourselves, could we not use a better word for her? I mean, we have little ears that listen to these things. We might have to explain these terms later. This makes for uncomfortable reading sometimes. I think she's continually called that so we might be reminded who she was and despite who she was, who God made her. That God is not a respecter of persons. And it didn't matter that that was her former way of life. God set his love on her anyway. When she is saved in Joshua 6, we'll be told Joshua saved her alive and she has lived in Israel to this day. She has been part of the people of God. And that should be an encouragement to all of us that God is not a respecter of persons. That God sends his grace to those who are looked down on in the world. All kinds of questions that come up from this text. I don't know what she was thought of in Jericho. We don't know what the Canaanite sensibilities were about things like this. I wonder what Solomon's family thought when he, she brought, when he brought her home. Whether they were really thrilled that he was engaged to Rahab the prostitute, the Canaanite. Couldn't you find a nice Jewish girl from among the people? She was from the people. You know, this is what God is teaching us. This is what his family is comprised of. And he's not ashamed 
to call people with different backgrounds his family. There's no one who can say, God can't love a sinner like me. Because God has loved sinners like us and worse. He's loved people like Rahab. He's loved people like the Apostle Paul, who says, I was far worse. Rahab was a prostitute. I was the chief of sinners. I tried to kill the church of Jesus Christ. And yet God set his love on me and was willing to have someone like me in his family. It doesn't matter who you are. God's promise comes to you that he's willing to receive you into his family, that Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and not just saved, adopted into the royal family, made part of the family of the king. All that matters is you do what she did. Hear who God is and put your faith and trust in him. Trust your whole life to him. Seek protection in his name from the judgment that's coming and you too will be saved. He will save you. He will welcome you into his family. He will exalt you. He will glorify you. Put your trust in Christ, his finished work on your behalf, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, and he will deliver you from this present evil age. He will deliver you from the destruction that's coming. Put your faith and trust in him, and you will find what redeemed sinners like Rahab and Paul found, as Paul described it in 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this passage. It reminds us that in wrath you remember mercy, that before judgment falls on the Canaanites and on the land you first saved your own, And we thank you for the picture of salvation that Rahab is to us. We thank you that despite what she had done in her previous life, she's held out to your people as a uh, model of faith, one to be emulated in the way she put her faith and trust in you and trusted herself to your protection. So we pray, Lord, that we might have that same faith, that we would put all of our trust in you, that we would sever ourselves from all other loyalties, that we might be those who seek refuge in your name. And having done that, might we remember what you did for her, that you incorporated her into your family, that you exalted her, um, and that you do the same for all those who put their faith and trust in you and become part of your family as adopted children. So we thank you, Lord, for being this kind of God who saves sinners and who is willing to set his love on people like us and even send your son to die for us. Thank you for such rich mercy and for bringing us into your family. May all find that Savior before the destruction comes. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take up our Psalters and as a song of response, turn to number 145B. Number 145B, and we'll sing the first five verses of 145B. Standing to sing.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, lift up your hearts now to the Lord and receive his blessing. And may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. People of God, go in peace.